you would this morning, let's turn back to 1 Timothy, and we'll be in chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The apostle begins this last portion of his epistle in verse 1 by saying, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into the temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. He tells him you're to fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. This is not the only time that the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of slavery in the New Testament. Um, thank God in our nation it's been outlawed might be surprised to learn it still exists not only in our nation but all over the world there are those who are not free the bible never did condemn slavery but it did regulate it it was regulated in the old testament it's regulated in the new testament what the gospel of the lord jesus christ has done though is changed many hearts to turn away from such practice so in america today where it is outlawed and has been for about 150 years now, how does this apply? When he lets us know, let as many servants as are under the yoke, here again the word servant means slave, count their own masters worthy of all honor. A person in that day and time under the Roman Empire who was a slave literally had no rights, none at all. No privileges, no rights. If they had a good master, they were a blessed individual, but they were literally viewed as nothing more than property to serve a purpose. Uh, but yet they were still to uh, render to their masters honor. Honor here, as we saw in the last chapter, is a payment. It is really financial uh, benefit to the person under consideration. Well, a slave who has nothing, how can they do that? Obviously by their labor. So he tells the believing servant, the believing slave, that he's to count their masters worthy of all honor. He says, and here's why, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. In other words, the Bible is letting us know, and it applies to us today as laborers, 
most everybody here, if you do not have an employer, you probably have had at some point in your life. And as such, they're worthy of honor. That means they're worthy of your labor. They're worthy of what they've hired you to do. And as a believer, you're not free from that. Becoming a believer did not uh, uh, give us such liberty that we're completely free of, number one, honoring masters or just not even having employment. The church at Thessalonica, they thought the Lord Jesus was coming back any moment when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and so many of them quit their jobs thinking Jesus is coming back any time. We've seen people even in my lifetime that have done that, that joined up with cults that believed that the end was near, and so people would quit their jobs, uh, combine their goods, and live together, and then come to find out the Lord didn't come like they thought. And so I've seen in several cases where then they committed suicide over uh, that situation. So there's a balance, obviously. But the church of Thessalonica, they went to the extreme. Well, Jesus is coming at any moment, and he is. I believe that fully. But Jesus himself said, occupy till I come. So you and I have the responsibility to labor till the Lord comes. Uh, I know many are laboring towards retirement, but frankly, the Bible never even mentions such as that. Uh, I know that's something we've uh, come up with and worked towards and look forward to, and hopefully one day we can get to a point where we've laid aside and can uh, lay down our labor, but uh, there's no guarantee in any of that. So he says, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. That means everything that is due them, you are to comply with. And obviously that's sometimes difficult. Not every master, not every employer that I've ever worked for was the godliest of people. Uh, sometimes there's a reason they got to that spot. Uh, and sometimes it was because they were very cunning. Sometimes it was they were very wicked. And they didn't care about people. And so when they got into a position of leadership, they didn't really care about me or the people under them. And working for someone like that obviously is not an enjoyable experience. But here Paul tells the believer that we're still to give all honor even to such a person as that. He says this is why. So that the name of God and his doctrine, his teaching, be not blasphemed. How would it look to an employer if you profess to be a Christian and Christianity uh, tells us that we are to labor and uh, be diligent in our lives, and yet we try to take advantage of an employer instead of give them all honor. What happens then? He says the name of God, and not only his name, but also his teachings will be blasphemed. They'll uh, be considered completely useless. How does the gospel alter our lives if then we go on the clock and try to uh, just skate by without doing uh, what's required of us? Obviously, Paul says the result of that is God's name and his teaching will be blasphemed. If you and I love the Lord like you and I ought to love the Lord, and we love the truth of his word, that ought to motivate us even uh, on Monday morning at 8 o'clock when you go in to work. Uh, it ought to motivate us in the schoolhouse. It ought to motivate mothers who are at home and their uh, daily labor is to uh, take care of their husband and children. It ought to motivate us. Our love for God and our love for his truth ought to motivate us in our everyday uh, experience of life. So again, he says, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And he says, and they that have believing masters... So that means some believers may be a servant, an employer, an employee to somebody who does not believe. That's going to happen. He says, but some of you, he says, will have believing masters. He says, let them not despise them. In other words, just because you have a believing employer, you're not to take advantage of that. 
Uh, don't think, well, since he's a believer and I'm a believer, uh, I ought to have special treatment on the, on the job. Uh, whether it be in the office, out in the work field, wherever it is, I should get special treatment because we're believers together. No, don't take advantage of the relationship you have in the house of God. Thank God you have a believing uh, employer. If you do, one who loves the Lord, hopefully he lives the gospel himself and is going to treat you very well. So don't take advantage if you happen to be in that situation. He says, they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren. Understand that here you are, uh, brothers in the house of God. And if you take advantage of a believing master, what's that going to do? It's going to be, bring strife not only in the workplace, but it then is going to bring that strife into the house of God because that employer is going to know that that employee, who's also a brother in the church, is not living up to his responsibilities under the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren. He says, but rather do them service. In other words, do exactly what's required of you. He says, you're to do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. Partakers of the same thing uh, that the servant has in the house of God. These things teach and exhort. Now, in Bible days, and even in slavery days of our own nation, there would be times that a master and a slave would be members of the same body. In some of the older church buildings in the United States, especially in the Northeast, you will find uh, where while worship was segregated, uh, believers and uh, I mean, um, slaves and masters would be uh, members together. In fact, you can read in some church records in the United States where a church member was admonished rebuked and sometimes even excluded for their abuse of one of their slaves. That's happened in our own. Imagine, though, if uh, one of those slaves had to be called of God to the ministry. And now in the house of God, uh, that slave, that servant is now in a position of higher authority than the master. Well, in the house of God, that may be true, but back into the workforce, what happens? Now the roles reverse, and here he says, uh, you're still to do them service because they are faithful, they're beloved, they're partakers of the benefit. And then he says to Timothy, these things teach and exhort. In other words, don't let the relationship uh, of master and servant uh, be twisted simply because both are members of the house of God. He says, otherwise it will bring strife into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know of at least one of employer here in our congregation who has employees who are members of this congregation. And it could fall out that if those members are not faithful, then uh, obviously his impression of them, not only as employees, but as uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, could be greatly impacted. And so it, we must take great care. There is more required of us in the workforce than there is of those who are in the world. Uh, because you're a member of the body of Christ and a follower of the Lord Jesus and a disciple of him does not give you free reign to act however you would like to. On the, you are called to a higher standard. Uh, you may see some that are still in company time or uh, still in company uh, resources. You have no right whatsoever uh, to do that. I have no right to do that. Uh, we must uh, uh, live the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the name of God nor his doctrine can be blasphemed. And he says that if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he says that some do not consent if they're teaching contrary 
to how you and I are to live after the Lord Jesus. Again, you and I, as we saw last week, are to live a godly life, a godlike life. That's the requirement placed upon you and, me, you and me by the Lord. So if you and I are to live a godlike life, and yet then we will not consent to wholesome words and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according or in agreement with godliness, what ha- he says that person is proud. So there are people who will not consent to the teachings of the Lord Jesus. They know the teachings of the Lord Jesus. They've heard them, but will not consent to them. Here's Paul's conclusion about a person like that. He says they're proud, knowing nothing. They may think they know everything. In fact, that usually is how it goes. But Paul just says they're proud, and he says not only are they proud, but they know nothing. So here's where they are. They're arrogant and they're ignorant. I have said many times one of the most fatal combinations that a person can have is to be arrogant and ignorant. That person is in a very, very dangerous place. If you're going to be arrogant, you better at least have some knowledge and bring something to back up the arrogance. If you're going to have an ego, at least have something to back it up. If you're going to be ignorant, be quiet about it. Uh, uh, Don't try to combine the two. Uh, You know the old saying, if you're ignorant, just keep your mouth closed so nobody will see it. Uh, uh, Open your mouth and you'll show yourself to be that. So here he says that man is proud and he's also a man that knows nothing. So he's arrogant. And he's ignorant. He's got a horrible combination to deal with. He's proud, knowing nothing. He says, but he dotes about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. So he says, here's what happens. When you have someone who will not consent to wholesome words, who will not Uh, align their thinking with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine that's according to godliness. First of all, that person is proud. They know nothing. So what do they do? They start doting about, they focus on uh, questions and strife, so things that cannot be answered. There are some things about life that I, I just know I will not know the answer to this side of heaven. I don't know why certain things happen. I do not know uh, why a lot goes on in this world that goes on. There's a whole lot that I don't have the why for. And I don't need to know the why. What I do need to know is that God is over my life. God has taken care of my life. God has secured my life to be with him in glory. And there's a lot of things that's going to happen between now and me going to heaven that I'm not going to understand. And even though I don't understand it all, that's okay because there's things that I don't need to know. God has taken care of. And if I will just entrust my life to him and trust that he will provide for me in the days of adversity and confusion when I don't know the way and I don't know what's going on and I just know that the Lord knows all things. He sees all things. He tries the heart. He knows the reins of men. He understands uh, the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of, of all men, whether they be righteous or wicked. I don't have it all figured out. And I'm not going to. So I'm not going to dote about things that I can't figure out the answers to. If it's not clearly spelled out in the Word of God, especially when it thinks about God, I'm not going to sit around and banter about those things. There are some that like to do that. There are some that want to continue going on and on and on and on about things that I cannot provide conclusive answers to. And if I can't provide conclusive answers from the Word of God regarding those questions, I'm going to leave them alone. 
You know, the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, I think the 29th chapter, that says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things to uh, his children, to us and his children. So there's things that God has revealed. There's things that God has not revealed. And the things that God has not revealed, the Bible says they belong to him. Now, I do know this, that the secret will of God, so-called, is not ever going to contradict his revealed will. God is never going to do something that uh, is going to contradict the word of God, the nature of God. There are some that believe, well, the secret things that God, uh, his secret will, you know, it's uh, doing things that is uh, contriving with Satan behind the scenes and uh, working out negative things in our life. And somehow, at the end of all that, God will work the two together and it will come to his glory and our benefit. There are some things that are going on in our life that God's not involved with, that God's not the author of, that God is not the cause of it, and God is not involved with it, except in the sense of providing for us and keeping us safe. So I do know this, that whatever God has not revealed, those secret things that belong to him, they will never contradict the nature of God or what God has revealed in his word. That'll never happen. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in the churches. Now, if God had a revealed will that's one thing and a secret will that's another, what is he? He's the author of confusion. God is not the author of confusion, but God also is not obligated to reveal everything about life to you or me. He's not obligated at all. He was not obligated to show me the gospel. He wasn't obligated to show you the gospel. Thankfully, by his mercy and his grace, he revealed that to you. He made manifest the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know about heaven. You know how you're getting to heaven because God in his mercy and grace was willing to show that to you. And you ought to be eternally grateful that in this life God showed you what he has shown you. You ought to take advantage of it uh, and you ought to rejoice in it and you ought to want to hear more about it. Uh, And that means we're not going to dote about uh, questions and stripes of words wherever he says comes envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. There's some things I just will never know. And you know what? That doesn't bother me. I remember a number of years ago, I I didn't hear it in person. I heard it on, I think it was CD by that time. (laughs) Brother Sonny preached a sermon, and the title of it was The Joy of Things I Don't Know. Have you ever thought about how much you ought to thank God about things you don't know? (laughs) There's some things that I don't know, and thank God I don't. (laughs) I don't know what it is to suffer the consequences of a whole lot of sins because thank God he's given me the strength to withstand those things. There's a whole lot of darkness that could have come into my life that I will never know because God's grace and mercy has been shed abundantly in my life. There's a lot of things I don't know, and I'm content with that. I'm satisfied with that. But here Paul says there are individuals in this world that will not consent to wholesome words. They're proud. They know nothing. And because they know nothing, now they're going to dote about questions that end up going to envy strife. He says they'll be perverse. They'll be Uh, railings, and then finally evil surmisings. They'll even surmise things about God. (laughs) In fact, one of the, to me, one of the most disgusting doctrines that there is in this world is the doctrine of the absolute predestination of all things by God. And there are some that cannot understand that there's things that God is not causing, and they just, that just, for whatever reason, There's a disconnect with understanding God has not predestinated all things, but God is, thank God, providentially intervening in our life. And there is a difference in God's predestination. 
that, and God's predestination, every time you find that word in the word of God, you'll find that it's limited. It's very limited. It always speaks of people, and it always speaks of where they're going. And it only speaks of the elect. Uh, God has predestinated his elect to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has set the eternal destiny of all the elect family of God. That's what's been predestinated. Now, Jesus Christ came into the world at the appointed time. Why? To make sure that God's predestinated people would make their destiny at the end of time. Now, there's a whole lot of things that happen between A and Z that God, uh, yes, may God, God may be guiding, and then again, God may have no part of. Think about Elijah. Remember when he had uh, faced down Ahab on Mount Carmel? Then he gets the word that Jezebel wants to take his life, and he flees. And when he flees, he finally comes to Jezreel, and when he gets there, he goes into a cave, and he lays down and just sleeps. An angel comes and touches him, tells him to rise and eat. And this man, of course, is very frustrated. He thought that when he had that showdown with Ahab, that the politics of the nation were going to totally turn. He thought, we're finally going to have it all set right. You know, it's amazing to me how many believers of the gospel think that every two years in November, if the right party gets into office, then it's all going to be all right. But, you know, I've lived life long enough to see both parties in control, and things are still a wreck in our nation. They still haven't got it figured out. Uh, it just depends on uh, both sides have their problems. That's just the reality, not to try to be political, but there are folks that are always looking for the politicians to be our redeemer. That's never been the way that God has operated. Uh, God is our redeemer. He's the only redeemer. So here is Elijah thinking that God is going to get it all fixed. Ahab's going to be converted, and it's all going to work out well. No, Ahab, he gets back, and, and Jezebel talks, and he's not changed. That showdown on Carmel didn't do anything to change his heart, and so there was no political revival in the nation. So you know what Elijah says? I, even I, am left alone. Take my life. Well, the Lord comes to Elijah through that angel. And then also there's going to be uh, several things that transpire to get his attention. There is an earthquake, and there's a fire, and there's a whirlwind. And the Bible says that the Lord was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. He was not in the whirlwind. But the Lord was in a still small voice. Now, I don't know if the Lord sent the earthquake, fire, and the world, but he didn't intend for those to get the attention of Elijah like his small voice. A lot of times we want God to speak in a very clear and audible way, and many times it's going to come in the very still, small voice, God speaking in the recess of your soul, and God, and you've got to pay attention. Anyway, so there's, a, there's back to the doctrine of the predestination of all things. In other words, that everything that happens from the time that creation took place till Jesus came, God has authored every bit of that. Number one, that makes God the author of sin. And that alone makes that doctrine, doctrine repugnant. And any child of God who loves the Lord ought to throw that out right out of hand. God hates sin. God has never approved sin. Uh, God is not going to use sin in a way uh, that brings glory to God. Thank God overcomes sin. 
God paid the debt of our sin, and for the wicked, he'll judge their sin. Uh, that's how God deals with sin. We see how God views sin. Look at what he did to his son on the cross. That's how God views sin. He took out the sword of his wrath, according to Zechariah chapter 13. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, meaning my equal. Uh, so that's what God thinks about sin. He took out his own sword, the sword of his justice, the sword of his wrath, the sword of his judgment. And what did he do with it? He plunged it into the very heart of his son uh, because of the sins of the elect family of God. Now, if God did that to his son because of our sins, then just imagine how God views sin. We know how he does because there's coming a day when the wicked shall be cast into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. That's how God views sin. So do you think now God is going to use our sins in some convoluted way, that God's the author of them, that God's the approver of them? No. God, but see, when people don't understand that there's things we don't understand, that is one of the conclusions that oftentimes folks come to. It seems logical, it's illogical, but it seems like, well, so what does it say? That they end up coming up with evil surmisings. I can't think of hardly a more evil surmising than to blame God and to fault God for the sin and the wickedness that goes on in this world. The book of Jeremiah makes it very clear that there were prophets that went that God never sent. God wasn't in it. There were practices being performed in Israel where children were being offered up to Molech and twice God says it never entered my heart it never entered into my mind. In other words, the things that, now does that mean that God didn't know about it in advance? Yes, God knew about it. God in his prescience, meaning his knowledge beforehand, God knew they would do it. When it says it never entered my heart, never entered my mind, what does God mean by that? I was not the author of it. It was nothing that I would have ever approved of. It's nothing that ever would have come up into my mind saying that this is a good thing to do. And here yet in our nation, we have embraced that very thing. Uh, as a, and thank God that here a few months ago, the Supreme Court of our land overruled that. And I hope state by state uh, that that will be outlawed altogether. Uh, but God never approved But just as God has not approved that, there's many things that go on in this world. God is not the author of it. And so for those who will not consent to wholesome words, they end up, as Paul says, they're proud, knowing nothing. And so since they don't know anything, what do they do? They start surmising. <laughs> and they come to the wrong conclusions. He says they'll have perverse excuse me, disputings. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. That's where they end up. And then he says, and here's where they really get, supposing that gain... Is godliness. So they ignore the doctrine of Christ, which leads to godliness, and the end result is when they dote about things that cannot be answered, they have evil, evil surmising, they have perverse minds, they get to the point that they think, well, gain is godliness. Now, there's two ways that I can think of to look at that. First of all, the gain of people's attention the gain of people's, um, the fact that people are impressed with them, the fact that folks will listen in and tune into that and embrace that way of thinking, that is one way that they gain. But there are literally uh, so-called preachers today, you've heard the term, I'm sure, the prosperity gospel, that are doing exactly what Paul here condemns, saying that if you truly are godly, then you're going to have financial gain. 
You know, some of the godliest people I've ever known were some of the poorest in this world. <laughs> some of the, the kindest, most charitable people were some of the godliest in this world. I've had folks not only here but other places say, well, we need some wealthy folks to join our church. No, we don't. <laughs> we need folks who are, uh, are very kind-hearted and generous to join the church of God because most folks that have a lot of money aren't willing to part with it. Uh, if you look percentage-wise, just like we saw a couple weeks ago about the widow that gave two mites, she gave 100%. Those others financially gave more as far as the uh, actual dollar amount, but percentage-wise, did they give like she did? They did not. So here he says... That person gets to the point that they think that gain is godliness. That to truly be godly, you're, you're gaining. You're gaining financially. You're gaining in the esteem of men. You're gaining in your position among men. And, of course, that's not what godliness is. Paul says, from such, withdraw thyself. But, you know, teaching that gain is godliness is one of the most appealing things to the human condition. When, I, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, one of the, the, there were multiple things that Satan was doing when he attacked the word of God with Eve. But one of the things he was saying to her is, there's more to life than you're experiencing. There's more power that you could have if you would do what God told you not to do. There's things that you're missing out on. Now, at that time, she had no corrupt nature, but she was deceived, the Bible says. So in her deception, she believed that. And so, so now then, that we're fallen, we have a nature that wants to gain. We want to, some want to gain knowledge. Uh, why do you think some folks are in college for years and years and years and years? Some certainly want to gain. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowledge, and I certainly don't want to be ignorant uh, of Many things, but there's a lot of things I do want to be ignorant about. Uh, there's nothing wrong with godly knowledge and the knowledge that you need to operate in this function in this world. You know, the Bible tells us through the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ that the children of this generation are wiser than the children of light. Uh, there are people in this world that are going to outsmart you. Why? Because they're wicked in their, in their thinking. You do have to know enough about this world how to operate in this world. <laughs> but you don't partake of it. You try your best to not let it dirty and soil you. Anyway... He says, these folks, they say that godliness is gain. Satan used that ploy. And now there are many that, that use that very thing to try to trap God's children. I don't know if it's the case anymore, but it used to be that Madison Avenue in New York City, part of that street, was known as Advertisement Central. That's where the main ads in America came from. So you had Madison Avenue executives, and you know what their goal was? All their goal was was to convince the American public that basically godliness or gain is godliness. That's basically what they're trying to do. They're trying to convince us that what we have is never enough, and so we need to continue to add more. Well, I understand why they want to do that. That's how they make money. Uh, obviously, uh, whether it be... General Motors, they want you to think that you need a new car. When I have found out that cars will typically last two to 300,000 miles. And so I have a different philosophy than a lot of people that like to uh, buy cars. I want to drive them until they fall apart. Uh, I don't want to go down to the dealership every two years and, and give them a whole lot of money. Uh, I've learned that when advertisement comes, 
I have a good friend at work that he's, he's very, he, sh he should be in marketing. He's very good at it. Uh, the only thing is, is it usually doesn't work too well on me. A lot of people it does, but it, I, I cannot think of one thing I've ever bought in my life because I saw a commercial on television. In fact, we don't even have cable anymore. We do everything through streaming, and so I don't even see commercials. I've been asked a few times lately, where, did you see such and such commercial? Like, nope, don't see them anymore. I just, I'm, I don't, but I don't think I've ever bought anything because I saw it on a commercial and said, I've got to have that. Now, that's not to say that I haven't seen something and said I had to have that. But advertising, the whole point of it is to convince us that what we have is never enough. It's never enough. And our human condition is that we always want more. And so here, the person who turns away from wholesome words, what do they become? They become very materialistic. So that tells me if I'm materialistic, I need to, I need to stop and see where I'm at. Have I consented to wholesome words? If my mind is continually on gaining more than what I presently have, and I tell you, I've got more than enough, if I'm constantly thinking about more, is it because I lack contentment in the things that God has done for me, eternally speaking, and the things he's already blessed me with. Now, that's not to say there's not needs that come up in life. It's not wrong to buy. There's no, even when those men said that we're going to go into such a city and we're going to buy and sell and get gain, you know, their buying and selling and getting gain was not criticized. But what was criticized was that they didn't include the Lord in that. And so, no, you're just to say, if the Lord will. If the Lord is in this matter, then we're going to go to such a city. We're going to buy, sell, and get gain. So when you are constantly thinking about more, wanting more, needing more, you think, even though I suspect everybody in this congregation has every necessity of life already in your hands, then it's very possible that we're not content with the fact that God has redeemed us, and God is providing for us every day the things that we stand in need of. So then Paul says, these folks withdraw thyself. He says, but. So here's the contract. He says, godliness with contentment. Godlikeness and being content, he says, is not just gain. He says, it's great gain. So this person who knows nothing and is proud and gets to the point that they think that uh, gain is godliness, Paul says, no, that's not true. Godliness with contentment is not only gain. They think it's gain to, I mean, they think it's godly to get more. Paul said, no, if you want great gain, I mean, if you have the opportunity in the stock market to gain or to have great gain, which would you pick? <laughs> Obviously, great gain. Now, here the apostle says, if you want great gain, he says, it comes with being godly and being content. Then he goes on to say, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. He says, this is just a reality. This puts it all in perspective. He says, it, this is the truth. He says, we brought nothing into this world. Not a thing. I mean, the only thing that I had when I came to this world is whatever somebody was willing to transmit to me, to give to me. If somebody wasn't willing to give something to me, I would have been in a very pitiful condition and before long would have perished. Read there in Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, about that uh, infant child, which uh, the Lord likens to the Israelites at that time, that was cast out naked into an open field. 
hadn't been salted or swaddled and no one had pity on it. It was just polluted in its own blood. And what did God do? God came by and said, live and clean that child, covered that child with his righteousness, and that child was... The point, though, is if God or God and your parents didn't have concern and compassion towards you, uh, you would perish very quickly when you come into this world. So he says, we brought nothing into this world. Remember what the person who knows nothing gets to. They think that gain is godliness. Paul just says, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out. There's nothing in this world that's materialistic, that's material, that you're going to take out with you. Not a thing. There's a lot of time and energy spent to acquire more than we need because we simply forget or ignore the fact that all that we get, one day we're going to leave behind to somebody else. All that we strive for and all that we acquire, some point is going to transfer to somebody else. Everything that we consider precious, everything that is worthwhile, it's all going elsewhere. Probably to the dump ground for a lot of us. But anyway, because uh, <laughs> your kids probably don't want it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he says, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. You know what Job said? Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. <laughs> that's how we come into this world, and that's how you're going to go out. Say, well, I'll surely pass away. Well, you're going to go through the hands of an undertaker, and I've been in those rooms, and it's not a delightful sight. You're going to come into this world naked, and you're going to go out naked. That's what the Bible says, and that's what happens. We find that in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon says, As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labors. So all that you're building, all that you're acquiring, all that you're saving, all that you're putting up, here Solomon says, nothing of your labor shall you take when you leave this world. That's just the reality. Now, he goes on in verse 9, he says, they that will be rich. When he says they that will be, he didn't say they that are rich. He says they that will, in other words, those who are only motivated in life to be rich, he says, fall into temptation and a snare. Solomon, who was rich, that one of the wealthiest men to ever live on the face of this earth. Here's what he had to say about wealth in Proverbs chapter 23. He says in verse 4, labor not to be rich. Well, that's easy for you to say, Solomon. You've got millions upon millions, if not billions. He says, labor not to be rich. He says, and also cease from thine own wisdom. Now, this is a man that had godly wisdom and he also had earthly wisdom. And there was a point in his life where he gave away godly wisdom and uh, continued to pursue after uh, uh, earthly wisdom, which the Bible says is sensual and it's devilish. You know, Solomon proved that. It was sensual. He had a thousand women to take care of. Why? Because his wisdom was sensual and it was devilish. So he says here, labor not to be rich. He knew what it was to be rich. He says, and cease from thine own wisdom. He knew what his wealth and his wisdom brought into his life. It brought great destruction. He goes on to say, he said, Will thou set thine eyes upon that which is not, in other words, wealth? He says, For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. 
How many of you over the last few months have looked at your 401k and IRAs? All this time over the last few years where the stock market went from about 18,000 to what, 36,000, 30, I don't remember how high it got. I mean, it, we saw astronomical growth in that thing. Uh, the Dow Jones just alone, I mean, that thing went wild for a while. I don't even know where it's at. I don't pay attention anymore. Uh, but anyway, I, I saw where it did climb this week. There's an election coming up, so they've got to try to cover some things. But anyway, um, you know, but imagine when that drops, and uh, when 1,000 points drop in a day. I don't know how much that equates to. I used to know the number, how much 1,000 points equaled in billions, if not trillions, of dollars. What happened? <laughs> that wealth got wings <laughs> and flew toward the heavens, just as Solomon said. It's amazing how wealth can just vanish away. It's amazing how that which you've worked so hard for and laid up can all of a sudden be gone. Didn't Christ teach us about that? About treasure on earth that be, can be corrupted by rust or the moth or thieves could break in and steal? But yet there is treasure that you and I, knowing the gospel, can lay up in heaven where moth nor rust can corrupt and thief can never steal. You say, how do I lay up in heaven? I, well, what you do, you live the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and a quiet and content life, thankful for what he has done for you eternally and how he's providing for you temporally. And in that, you're laying up store riches in heaven. And no one can take that from you unless you're willing to give it to them. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 23, verse 23, buy the truth and sell it not. But there's some folks that sell it. Madison Avenue comes by and they sell the truth in order to buy whatever it is they're trying to sell. So he says, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Food and raiment, food and clothes, let us therewith be content. There was an old colored preacher one time who said, that means having beans and britches. Uh, be content with that. Uh, now, say, well, Paul, how can you say, well, Paul says this in Philippians 4. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, this is verse 10, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. He means here, you're taking care of me financially. Notice again, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care, your financial provision of me hath flourished again. There was a time, he says, though ye lacked opportunity. They wanted to before, they couldn't, now they could, and Paul rejoiced. But notice what he says. Not that I speak, that I speak in respect of want or need. He says, I'm not grateful about this because all of a sudden now I have all these finances. Paul said, I'm thankful the Lord has blessed you and also bless you with a heart that you want to take care of one of his servants. He says, not that I speak in respect of one or need. He says, for I have learned, and I understand this, contentment is something that has to be learned. It's not something that comes automatically. What Madison Avenue does with their advertising, they know how to appeal to what comes naturally. What comes naturally to us is we want more and more and more and want to give less and less and less. That's what our nature teaches. It doesn't even have to teach us. That's what our nature is. The Spirit of God and one who will be godly has to learn to be content. Paul says again, not that I speak in respect of what, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whatsoever state. Think about the different states that the Apostle Paul was in. 
Read about his afflictions when he wrote to the church at Corinth. When he says, I was in perils of robbers. I was in perils of the sea. He says, I was in perils from my own countrymen. He said, I was in stripes oft, in prisons oft. He says, in depths oft. He says, a night and day I spent in the deep. He goes on and on and on and lists all of the things that he had gone through. And yet Paul says, I have learned whatsoever state that I'm in to therewith be content. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi in prison. And yet Paul says, even in a state of prison, I have learned to be content. Well, because they're in the prison, he had his food, he had his raiment. He was, he was satisfied with that. So he says, I know how to be abased. That means brought low. He says, and I know how to abound. Paul says, I've lived in both states. I've lived where I was as low as you could, as you could be. Left for dead outside a city where he was stoned and thought dead. So he'd been that low. And then there he is in Acts chapter 28 where they think he's a god. <laughs> Talk about extremes of high and low in life, mountains and valleys. Goes from being stone left for dead. And then he's thought to be a god because a viper fastens on his hand and he didn't die. The Apostle Paul says, I have been abased. I know how to be abased. And I know how to abound. I know how to live high and I know how to live low and everywhere in between. You know, not everybody can say that. You know, there are some folks that every few days go down to a gas station to buy lottery tickets because the Powerball gets to be so high. Have you ever read the stories of people that come into instant wealth? What typically happens? The vast majority, the vast majority end up worse off in a few years than they were before they ever won that stuff. You know why? Because instant rich people can't handle that. Most people who handle money well got there incrementally. They didn't get there overnight. Take somebody who's been very successful, built up a business, and here they've worked very hard, diligently to labor, and they, through wisdom and cunningness and uh, skill, were able to build up a business. And then they pass it off to the next generation who didn't know what it was like to work up, but maybe they maintain where it was. And then it goes to the third generation. You know what usually happens by generation number three? It starts going downhill. Uh, they don't know how to handle that. It just got handed to them instantly where a grandfather knew how to handle it because he built upon it uh, little by little by little. You know, there in Proverbs uh, 30, uh, Solomon says, Two things have I required of thee. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. He says, in other words, just let me be middle class. <laughs> I, for, I'm satisfied with that. I don't want to be poor, and I don't want to be rich. Believe it or not, I have no desire to be rich. I don't care about that. Thankfully, I've moved. There was a time, yeah, I'd love to have been a millionaire. Thankfully, I'm not there anymore. I just don't care about that. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. And he says, here's why. He says, if I'm poor, I might steal and shame the name of God. He says, and if I'm rich, I'll forget God. And that's what usually happens. So he says, just keep me there in the middle somewhere. But Paul says, I have learned whatever state I'm in, there would to be content. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then this very well-known verse comes. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What do you think he means by that? He says, I can abound and I can be abased. I can be full and I can be hungry. He says, I can be content 
whatever state I'm in, and this is how I can be content, because through Christ I can do all things with strength. That doesn't mean that I can do just anything I set my mind to, and Jesus is going to give me the strength for that. What that means is that in my life, as I am seeking to be a content individual, whether it be in times of plenty or times of want, whether it be times when things are going really well or things are going horribly in my life, uh, whether it be in times where the bank account's full or I don't know how we're going to pay the next bill, and we've been in both of those situations here, the Apostle Paul says, I can function that way, and I can still trust the Lord and live a godly life and not check out on Christianity because the Lord Jesus Christ is strengthened in me. And that's what you and I stand in need of is the strength of Christ so that we can be content with the things that we have. Again, the materialistic individual is a person who, if they haven't already, they're very close to forgetting and not consenting to wholesome words. And they finally come to the conclusion that gain is godliness. So Paul says having food, and raiment, let us therewith be content. Food and raiment. <laughs> Say, well, that's not a whole lot. Food and clothes, that doesn't even cover housing, transportation, you know, health insurance, retirement. It doesn't. It says having food and raiment. See, Paul, when he talks about all that he'd gone through, he had been naked. He had been hungry. He was in perils of famine. He knew what it was in perils of nakedness. So he literally had been naked and hungry. So he said, you know what? I've learned after being naked and hungry that if I have food and clothes, that's sufficient for me. The problem with most of us is we've just never been hungry enough. One of the most content people I ever knew was my great-grandmother. I know I talk about her a lot, but there were so many ways that she fulfilled the gospel commandments. When her husband passed away in 1988, she drew right about $500 a month. Now, you go back and calculate what things that cost in 1988, she was not living on hardly anything. She still put 50% from then to her death into savings every month. Now, how in the world did she live on $250 a month? Here's how she did it. Her bill stayed the minimum. Her gas bill, natural gas, never went above the minimum. You know how? She had a wood-burning stove, and she went out in her late 60s at a widow, as a widow and split wood and built fires every morning to keep her house warm. She grew a big garden. She had fruit orchards, and she put up food like you wouldn't believe. She allowed herself uh, $75 a month for groceries, one trip to town a month, which was 18 miles each way. Her church met twice a month, which was 67 miles each way, so one tank of gas a month is what she allowed herself. And she still put away 50% of her money, and she also gave to the house of God. And when her grandson told her that when he got to be older and wealthier, he was going to build her a brand new home. If you ever saw the home my great-grandmother lived in, you'll understand it was one of the most humble places that a person could live. Me and my wife lived in it for two years before we moved here. Uh, I was constantly working on that place. But anyway, but it was also a wonderful time. She, you know, she said no. She was like the Shunammite. I dwell among my own people. She was satisfied right there. It's where my grandfather had left her. It was home. They'd lived there for about 50 years. She didn't want to leave that. And so she was very, very satisfied. So he said, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Time's running out. He says, they that will be rich, those that that's their only goal in life. Again, he's not saying those that are rich. 
He says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That means destruction as well. So Paul just said they that all they can think about is gaining wealth. Number one, there's going to be temptations they fall into. They're already in a snare because they're bound to money. He says, not only that, they're going to find themselves in many foolish and hurtful lusts. I know a person that (laughs) he's probably about 60 years old, maybe a little older than that now, that his entire adult life has been spent trying to follow the next get-rich-quick scheme. I have seen that man plunge his family into such poverty because he thought if he would put X amount of money into something, which was all they had, then all of a sudden he would be super wealthy. Always wanting to be rich. That's all he could think about. And I have watched him over the years fall into many foolish and hurtful things that he didn't have to experience, that his family didn't have to go through if he just simply went and got a job and took care of things. And he might have by now had the money that he'd always wished for if he'd have just settled in somewhere and been committed. But anyway, uh, I've watched this scripture come to life in that man's life. Again, he says, They that will be rich, they fall into the uh, temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. He says, For the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Now, you understand here, the word all here does not mean Everything that's evil that happens is because somebody loves money. The word all means all kinds. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Why do you think there's con men in this world? Because they love money. There's a lot of things that go on in this world that shouldn't go on, and it's driven by the love of money. It says the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil and having money is the root of all but the love of it you need to understand that money is a tool and that's simply what it is it's there to pay tico it's there to pay Publix and win dixie it's there to pay the car payment and the mortgage payment it's there to take care of the insurance bills. And so when a broken leg happens or whatever, you don't have to fork out you know, tens of thousands. Uh, that's what it's there for. It's there to take care of the daily necessities of life. If the Lord blesses you with more than that, then thank him. And if the Lord gives you just enough to get by, then thank him for that as well. But for somebody who loves money, and that's all they can think about, that all they can think about is being rich. And he says, all of a sudden, this person who all they can think about is being rich, they find themselves in foolish and hurtful lust. There they are in destruction and perdition. All of a sudden, you're going to find those men willing to do some very evil things so that they can gain the money that they love. And he says, and these, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He says, but thou, O man of God, here's a better way to live. You can live that way if you want. He says, but here's the better way. He says, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. He doesn't just say, avoid them. He says, run from them. Flee these things. And follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. There's great gain in a life that has that in it. The man who is only seeking after wealth, maybe will get there. 
but he's going to find himself pierced through with many sorrows along the way. But a person who's willing to just simply commit themselves to righteousness and to faith and to patience and meekness and those things that here Paul has described is going to have a life that is abundantly blessed and a wealth that no one can take away. You'll have riches that will not uh, get eagle's wings and soar towards the heavens. You'll have wealth and riches that you can enjoy all the days of your life. That's something I beheld in my grandmother. You know, there were so many things that she didn't concern herself with and worry about because she wasn't focused on all the gain of this world, but was satisfied with where God put her and what God blessed her with. And would to God that I also could learn that whatsoever state I'm in, to therewith be content. So here Paul says, it doesn't, and it doesn't matter if you're uh, an employer or you're an employee, a master or a slave. He says this applies to us all. If we'll just simply be content with where God has placed us and where, with what God has given us and where God leads us and guides us and uh, helps us along the way, then your life is going to be one of the wealthiest existences that there can be upon the face of the earth. Now, the world may scoff at you. They may laugh at you. They may criticize you because you don't have the latest and the greatest. You know, there's times that I look at my vehicle that's about to be 10 years old, and I look and see one that's uh, sitting beside it that's much sportier looking, and uh, I'd really like to have. And then when I see that $50,000 price tag on that vehicle, you know what? Mine looks really good all over again. <laughs> uh, there was a time, though, I didn't think that away. There was a time I needed the latest and the greatest. I'm thankful I'm learning that. I haven't learned it all the way yet. Uh, and I hope the Lord will continue to bless me to learn that the state I'm in to therewith be content. I can do that through the help of Christ who strengthens me. May God bless you today as I pray.